That's better. That's an idea. Either that or we can make it even more fun. We'll ask for volunteers, right? Who would like to do this this morning? Romans chapter 1. Larry's out of the room. Oh, there he is. Larry, what did we leave off last week? No, I'm kidding. Okay. It's a, jo- it's a Wednesday night joke. So I'm going to back up a little bit and uh, to try to catch a little bit more context. But uh, this morning, I, I want to look at verses 21 and 22 and, and into 23 and 24 some on this. But I, I want to back up all the way to verse 16 of Romans chapter 1 just to kind of grab context and, and, and to do some, uh, a little bit of comparison with what Paul is writing. Because he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God has also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear this very difficult passage this morning, that you would enable us and fill us with your spirit, that we might hear that which you would say to us. I ask, Lord, too, that you would uh, fill me with your spirit, that you would help me to weed through areas that that you desire for us to address and then other areas that perhaps you would like for us to pass by for now. Speak to our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we've covered part of this on, on Wednesday night, and so hopefully I won't be repeating too much of Wednesday night. Um, and then hopefully on Wednesday night, I'm not going to repeat too much of this morning. And, uh, but but this, is, this is some very heavy stuff. It's, it's, uh, I think it's important that we grab a hold of this. And there's, there's contrast here that, that we want to uh, make sure that we're aware of. One of the first ones is, is, and I brought this up on Wednesday night, was the contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. 
between that, that right standing uh, of God and with God and everything else, essentially. When we decide that we're going to do our own thing or, or uh, not walk in the ways of God, uh, then we walk in the ways of unrighteousness. Uh, and, but what God is telling us here uh, is that, that, that God has revealed... We talked about this last Sunday. God has revealed himself to us through nature. Uh, it's called natural revelation. He's revealed himself uh, to us through, through the heavens, through, through creation. Uh, and what's interesting here is it, it says that uh, although they knew him, verse 21, although they knew him uh, as God, they did not glorify him as God. And nor were they thankful because of their, but became futile in their heart, their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay. So, what you have here is that with the revelation of God, as we respond, I brought this up before, okay, but I think this is so important. Not only important to, to non-Christians in, in hopefully their path of becoming Christians, but also in our Christian life, that as God reveals himself to us, and I use the metaphor of light, as God reveals his light to us, as we respond to that light, then he gives us more light. If we turn away from the revelation, or we turn away from the light that God gives us, and incidentally, that can be Christian or non-Christian, I believe, if we turn away and neglect the light and decide that we're not going to respond to the light, then I think at times God will begin to withhold his light. Now, the question begs to then to be asked, where do we go? Where is that place that we go too far? Because the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that God will not always strive with man. We see this in the narrative of Noah. God will not always strive with man. But where do we get to that place where we go too far? What, where's that, that, that falling off point? I don't know. I don't think I want to ever identify it. Because knowing some people, they would probably want to get as far to the edge as possible without falling over, and then their enemy would come and push them over, right? I mean, there's, you know, I, now, I don't really like heights, um, I've been on sky, you know, going up on, I, I, I didn't want to go on the, I didn't go on the Space Needle. Didn't want to go up on the Space Needle. It's too high. Uh, I've been on other structures like that. And then as I think about like the Crooked River uh, Canyon, it's like you, you go down there and look and it's probably about five miles deep, isn't it? Um, so it feels. And so I kind of want to look like this and hopefully I'm kind of stepping back as I'm looking back. I don't want to get too close to the edge. Why? Because I have this fear that I'll fall in. And I think that we need to understand these things in our relationship to God or in our response to God is that we never want to get too far to the edge. Now, I also believe, and I've told you guys this before, I believe when you're saved, you're saved, all right? When you're saved, you're saved, all right? And even if somebody does push you over the edge, God's going to catch you. Or at least he's going to pick you up after you fall. But I, I think when you're saved, you're saved. But, but I, think, I think we can, we can uh, there are times in our life where God is calling us, let's say, to turn right. And we, we are bent, we are bent to turn left. And we do so. Ever had that? Ever? Now, don't raise your hand. 
Don't look at people. Anyway, watch the ceiling. But we have those times in our life where God says, I want you to do this, and we say no. You ever had a life like that? I've had a life like that. So God had to rework. God repositions. He does so in his grace. He does so in his mercy. But he will rework. He will reposition. And he will continue that, that work in us. But I never want to tell, particularly tell a lost person, where can they go? What is that impardonable sin? Where can they go where they no longer hear the voice of God? I've met a few people that I suspect were there. And it, it's, it's incredibly troubling, incredibly disheartening uh, when I talk to them about spiritual things. But it says here that they knew God in verse 21. Although they knew, because although they knew God. Now that word know is the Greek word gnosko. It refers to knowing experientially. Knowing experientially. Now, let me back up just a touch. I think here in Romans 1, it is talking about people who have not entered into the faith. People who are not born again. People who are not saved. Okay, I think that's what this is talking about here. However, it does say that they had some kind of experiential knowledge of God. In other words, God was attempting to reveal himself to them. And as I've shared with you before, I I have never met a four-year-old atheist. Have you? You talk to children about God and they naturally do what? They believe you. I believe that's part of that natural revelation where God begins to start that work in the life of a person, and probably very early, even for those who, who don't have a church background. Mary and I saw this time and time again when we were doing Good News Club years ago here at the elementary school, and the bulk of the kids that we dealt with didn't go to church. But when you started talking to them about the things of God, you could see where they were connecting. It was, yeah, I get that now. Matter of fact, there was this one kid, his name is Raymond, um, and it probably still is, but uh, he got saved. And immediately he understood that the lifestyle of his single mother was not pleasing to God. We didn't tell him that. We're we're not going to do that in Good News Club. And I remember one day he he told Mary, he said, yeah, unless she repents, she's going straight to hell. I thought, wow, we've got to bring this little six-year-old kid in and let him preach. You know, and, and I'm sure mom didn't appreciate it, and, but, uh, but nonetheless, he got it. We didn't tell him, but he got it because God revealed it to him. And it says here that they knew God. They had a knowledge of God, an experiential knowledge of God. Now, they, they may not have understood the whole understanding of systematic theology from A to, a to Z, and I don't think any of us really do. I know that when I got saved at at eight years of age, I didn't understand a whole lot about the Bible, but I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that Jesus died for me. I knew that Jesus wanted to save me. Matter of fact, the pastor had to actually explain to me what saved meant. They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. I think this is fascinating. Because the glory of God and the thanksgiving to God go hand in hand here. 
the glory of God and the thanksgiving given to God go hand in hand. Now, have you ever given something to someone and they don't say thank you? Especially if it was something that you kind of got out of your, went out of your way really to make sure they had it. I don't know what it would be. You fill in your own blank on that. But how does it make you feel? Besides, you ungrateful little wretch, right? Or pick your own words, okay. You feel disrespected, don't you? And I know that I've learned, because I've learned that some people just don't do that. They don't say thank you, all right? So I've learned that, okay, I'm going to give this to a person. They're not going to say thank you. We're going to move on, all right? But when you do not thank God for what he has given you, in essence, you are denying him a portion of glorifying him. Follow this. You are denying him a portion of glorifying him in your life. Now, there are certain things that have come across my path that I don't know if God gave them to me or not. I, I, matter of fact, I, 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 the more I go in life, the more I think that, that we are in an incredible spiritual warfare that we don't often recognize. Does God permit everything to happen? I think he does. Does God cause everything to happen? I can't go that far, all right? Uh, can he stop it? Yes. Then why doesn't he? I don't know. Read the book of Job. Figure it out for yourself, all right? I mean, it's, it's difficult. When you think about Job, Job never got an explanation. He never gets an explanation for why Satan was able to do the things to him that he did to him. But if you're familiar with that book, do you remember what Job continued to do? Even in the face of, at times, being angry with God, And challenging God, he continued to do what? He continued to glorify God. He continued to be in a place of submission to God when he said, though he slay me, yet I will still, what? I will still trust him. I will still praise him. And this idea of glorifying God is recognizing that in the book, like what the book of James says, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So everything good in your life is given to you because God decided to give it to you. You didn't go out and get it yourself as much as you think you might have or as much of an effort that you might have put into it even. So he has given us, he has given us good things. Now, in saying that, and boy, this is, I'm, there's a wrestling match going on in my own head this morning because there are times that it's like, I really need to thank him for this trial, but you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, it's just like, ah, can I just get this in my sleep? 
Because some things are really hard. And, and, and it, it seems that at times God asks us to, to walk and to, to endure certain things. And yet, all things work together. This is in the book of Romans. For good to those who are called of God, those who love God, and are called according to his purpose. Now, some of those old things may not happen until we get into his presence, until we get into heaven. They knew God. They did not glorify God. Nor were they thankful. So then they, because of that, they become futile in their thoughts. Okay? Now, a little bit of grammar here. Where it says they knew God that they were thankful, and they glorified God. Their verbs, they are in the active voice in the Greek. What does that mean? It means the person whom the text is talking about is the one performing the action. So those who knew God, they are performing that action. Those who did not glorify God are still performing that action. Those uh, uh, who are not thankful... They're still performing the action of, can I make up a new word? Non-thanksgiving? I won't say un-thanksgiving. That didn't quite work. I don't think non-thanksgiving works either. So anyway. But then when it says that they're, they're, uh, they're thinking that they're, they became futile in their thoughts, it changes from the active voice to the passive voice which means it is something that is happening to the person that the text is talking about. In other words, because they refuse to glorify God, because they refuse to be thankful to God, then there's this condition came upon them. That's what it's really saying here if you, look, if, if you understand the verb structure, that they, they became futile, uh, that their thinking became vain. And it goes on to say that their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not darken their foolish hearts. But as a result of their lack of thanksgiving, as a result of their lack of glorifying God, the natural result was that their hearts became dark. How long did it take for that to happen? Again, that's like the question of how far can I go and not fall off the edge. We don't know. But what the text is declaring here that, that even though these people knew God, did not thank him, did not glorify him, because they were not in a place of worship towards him. Because that's what glorifying and thanking God is. It's, it's about worshiping him. And worship is so much more than what we do here when we sing a few songs. Worship is even so much more than what we all do here as we're listening to the teaching of the word. Worship is as we go about our day. Are we mindful and are we submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? And do we live a life that is a life of thanksgiving? Are we thankful for what we have? I I I think we are thankful, but I think at times we become obsessed with the things we don't have. And I'm thankful, but it, I would be 
more thankful. You play less, make a deal with God, right? You know, if you give me a little bit more, I would be a little bit more thankful to you, you know, and, and you end up finding out what's behind door number three and you're in trouble, right? But uh, um, nonetheless, because they were not worshipers, that's what this really boils down to. They became vain in their thinking and their heart. So it's mind and heart here. Mind and heart. Their heart becomes darkened. And it goes on again to talk uh, more about their thinking in verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's a huge contradiction. That's a huge uh, uh, disparity. They declared, that's what the word professing means. They made a declaration that they were wise people. I, want to give, I don't want to give you, I've got many examples to give you, and I'm not going to give you any of them. I'll just let you deal with that and work that through any way you need to. But they profess to be wise. Ever meet people like that? I've even, I, I saw a course recently on, on a, a certain form of wisdom. Hmm. They profess to be wise. What a contradiction. And, and, and when you think about this, you have people whose mind, hearts are darkened, whose thinking vain thoughts, they think they're wise. They're in an, in an incredible spiritual blindness. They are in an incredible spiritual blindness. But the thing is, is that you and I, we were made to worship something. That's how God made us. There's something that's innate within us is that we want to worship. And most of the time, we want to worship something that's larger than ourselves. Now, Clay brought up a good point on Wednesday night. I don't know if you remember where he was talking about modern man and how modern man and their thinking has shifted. We in, in modernity, we've decided because of our superior reasoning abilities and our scientific advancements that we now worship ourselves. We worship humanity. And normally, we worship ourselves. And so, we declare that we are wise. And all the while, completely unaware of our own foolishness. There's a a psychological term for that. It's called delusion. And when you come across someone who is suffering from delusion, good luck essentially, because there's very little that you can do to pull them out of their delusion. And often it is that any attempts that you try to make to try to bring them out of their delusion only does more, does nothing more than reinforce their thinking. And so what you have here is people who, who see themselves as the apex of existence, 
wise people, in reality, they're foolish. And they're delusional. And they don't see it. Which is this form of spiritual blindness. And it says, they uh, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, I, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago. This word fool is an interesting word because it's the Greek word moreno. From which we get our English word. Some of you just already mouthed it back to me. Moron. Professing to be wise, they became morons. I think that's a funner translation. I think it's fairly accurate. And that verb, fool, it's a verb. Is it active or passive? It's passive. It's passive as well. In other words... Here are people professing one thing and be, because they have not given thanks to God, because they have not glorified God, because they have not recognized him for who he is, they become foolish. It's a natural consequence. Because the scripture tells us that Satan likes to take people captive. And he likes to hold people in a place where, where they are living in a sense of delusion. I think a lot of times when you're dealing with people who are deluded, it's probably a spiritual battle that you have to deal with. And so these things are natural consequences of not worshiping, not giving thanks, and not glorifying God. And they notice, okay, they thought they were wise. Truly they were foolish. And in their foolishness, that they think is wise, by the way, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed creatures and creeping things, okay? Remember, this is written in a pre-modern context where... Uh, people worshiped idols. Now, he's writing to Romans. They basically ripped off Greek pagan theology and changed the names from Greek to Latin. And they had the, the worship all these, these gods that were just basically uh, exalted uh, caricatures of bad men and women is what they really were temperamental, uh, envious, jealous, all these, these things that they're, the, these false gods possessed. And, and again, modern man sees themselves as the pinnacle of existence. What is one of the big things that they stress these days and have for years now? Self-esteem, Maslow, self-actualization. It's all about, about the self. Jesus came along 2,000 years ago and said, if any man come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see the, the antithetical thinking that's taking place today? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, but they don't see man as corrupt. 
And I don't blame them sometimes because personally, I don't want to see myself as corrupt. I don't really have a hard time seeing you as corrupt, right? That's a lot, that's a lot easier pill to swallow. Or I've got to pull a name here of somebody not in the room or somebody not in the church. Or poor Zach, he always struggles, you know, that kind of a thing, right? And I can do that in my own declared wisdom. But then I recognize, for goodness sake, I'm just like everybody else. And in that realization, hopefully, that opens the door to God's light. Remember what I said, if God gives light, if you respond to it, he gives you more light. And that first light would be the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. My goodness, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just like these people, and so I need a Savior just like they do. Some of you are thinking, yes, it's about time you realize that, right? Pre-modern man would... Isaiah 44 is really interesting about this. He talks about taking a piece of wood where a man takes a piece of wood so that they can burn it and they use some of that wood and, and they will use it to, to warn themselves and, and, and they'll use some of that other wood to, to bake bread with and, and, and then they'll take some of that, pe- that piece of wood and they'll carve it into an image and, and they, will, they, will, they will call it a god and they worship it. And they make a carved image, Isaiah 44, 15, and they fall down before it. Now, that sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? That they would fall down before a piece of wood. That same piece of wood could be put in the fire to keep them warm or to bake their bread. And often it is that we create these ideas about God. We'll admit that there is a God, but we, we want God to be a certain way. We want him, to, him or her, some people, to act a certain way, to believe a certain way, to help us out when we need help and to leave us alone when we don't want him interfering. And essentially, that God, which is a false God, of course you understand this, that God is often nothing more than an exalted form of ourselves. And it, it's fascinating how, and I, I've heard it for years, that, that my God, my Jesus, you know. I always, I, always I, I struggle with that. Now, some, notwithstanding, some of us have had some pretty bad images of God, and we had to learn to really and still learn, I think, to, to know the God of grace, the God of love, the God of mercy, the God of kindness. But I think when we create a God in our own image, we are creating that deity in such a way that we can control him. And if you have a God that you can control, who's really God? Who are we really glorifying? 
who we're really being thankful to. And if we have formed a God in our own thinking, in our own understanding, then now we can declare our wisdom. All the while, as I said earlier, the Bible declares that the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. And that requires humility because the reality is we don't have it all figured out, do we? We don't. We wish we did. It says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This word gave, it's weird how the translators worked with this. The word, there's one word, um, forgave and up. And there's another word in the Greek for them, the pronoun them. All right. But, but this, this concept of, of God giving them up, this word that's used for when someone was delivered, it's used in, in the Passion narrative several times, particularly in the book of Mark, when Jesus delivered up, excuse me, when Judas delivered up Jesus to the Romans. When the Sanhedrin delivered up Jesus to Pilate. When Pilate delivered up Jesus to the will of the people. It, it's also used in other passages where it refers uh, to this idea of God giving people over for judgment. We see this in, in the book of Acts chapter 7 verse 42, for example, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19. God gave them up. God gave them over. How do, and we're probably going to work some more with this on, on Wednesday night because this is a huge... So here's some homework for you for, for those of you who want to come on Wednesday night. What does that mean? My personal... I'm almost tempted not to tell you right now, but I've got a few minutes. I tend to think that God respects our free will. And I'm really fine with that, with God respecting my free will. But then I pray to God that he will override the free will of people that I love who don't want to follow him. So it's, it's, to me, it's, it's this paradox that we find ourselves in. But did, uh, th- there's two views on this, that, that, that because they, they did not worship God, because they did not glorify him, because they were not thankful, then because of their foolish minds and their, their, they, they, they had vain thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, then God says, okay, uh, this is what you get. This is what you want, then I'm going to make it solid. I'm going to solidify this in your mind. Or the other view is that God just lets you go and lets you pursue that which you want to pursue. I think both, both views have a biblical uh, foundation before them. The first one we will see again in the book of Romans later on where we talk about God's dealing with Pharaoh and how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I, but I, it's, it's my view that primarily that God gives people what they want. That's a scary thing. 
You know, I, what, I, what I have found is, and it, I, I talk with people from time to time about spiritual warfare, and I think, I, I think of some people, and I think they don't, they're not encountering spiritual warfare. They're such a mess that, 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 that the, devil, the demons, the devil, Satan doesn't deal with them at all because they don't need to. Because some people are just set on such a, uh, a path of self-destruction. And I'm talking about people who declare to be wise. But their minds have become foolish. It says God gave them up to uncleanness. This phrase that Paul is using here, this word of uncleanness, it really talks about this more of this Jewish idea of being unclean, therefore you are alienated from life with God. You're alienated from life with God. Because of your of a person's willful uh, continuance in sin. God finally says, if this is what you want, go ahead and have it. And they're given up to a life that is alienated from the presence of God. And that's what this, this idea... Now, there's this word uncleanness. It, it has several, okay, several different uh, ideas that it's used, particularly in the Old Testament. Some of it is sexual purity or impurity, but some of it is ceremonial uncleanness. If you're familiar with the Mosaic Law, if you did certain things or whatever, you would be ceremonially unclean. And I think what Paul is saying here is that he's covering the full gamut. This is, this is a person who, who lives in a life that's alienated from God and really has no desire to, make, uh, to be found by him. That's the better way to say it. They're continuing on in their path and leaning on their own understanding rather than leaning upon God's understanding. God gives them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Obviously, that's a sexual reference to people's sexual impurity is what Paul is actually talking about here. And then he goes full bore into it as we will look in a few verses uh, from now uh, on Wednesday night. But real quick, as I, was, as I was reading through this passage and thinking about this passage and not wanting to teach on this passage, this is a tough one, um, I stumbled across Isaiah 42. And I have to think that Paul had this passage in mind when he wrote this little section of Romans chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 42. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, I'm in verse 1, in whom my soul delights. Okay, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one. Who's this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. It's talk, this, is a, this is a messianic song. This is one of the servant songs. Okay. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. 
He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Part of this is also quoted in Matthew chapter 12. Thus says the Lord, verse 5. Thus, sorry, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. See, the, so it's talking about natural revelation here. Who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the, the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you. Again, he's still speaking to the Messiah, I believe. I've called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. Or a better translation, I am Yahweh, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. See, I read Romans, and Romans chapter 1, at least this section, I read it and it just depresses the daylights out of me. But then I go to Isaiah chapter 42 and it encourages me because we do have one who will open the blind eyes, who bring prisoners out of prison and who, for those who sit in, in darkness from the prison house, he will not give his glory to another. Now, as I think about that, and we're almost out of time, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna unpack this passage for you. I just want to leave it for you and let you let you read it and think about it and pray about it and meditate on it. But as I think about where he says he will not give his glory to one another, the reality is that he is only he and he alone is only the one to whom our worship should be directed toward. Amen? Do we have another God like our God? Do we have another God that we should glorify, that we should be thankful to? Of course not. If it is true, as I said in the beginning, in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. If that is true, and it is, then I think it's important that we continue and, and, and develop and increase our sense of glory and glorifying him. Our sense of thanksgiving and being thankful to him. That, that these two elements, I, again, they go hand in hand and they're tightly woven together, I believe. These two elements are the two main, uh, uh, I think, elements of what our worship is to consist. And if we do this, I'm going to flip this whole thing in Romans around real quick. If we do this, our thoughts won't be vain. Our hearts will not be darkened. We will not profess ourselves to be wise 
But because we fear the Lord, the Lord will declare that we are wise. So this thing can be spun up around 180 degrees. And really from Romans 1, we can glean from this passage how we are to live and the things that we can expect from God if we glorify him and if we thank him. Because he is worthy of our praise. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your great faithfulness to us. We'd ask, Lord, that when we get to those places that we, we are not thankful or we are not uh, glorifying you, Lord, would you please remind us of the greatness of our God? Would you please remind us and call us back to that place where we could worship you in spirit and in truth? We'd ask, Lord, too, that you would safeguard our minds, that they would not be thinking futile thoughts or vain thoughts, and that you would protect our hearts that the light of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would continue to shine in them. Help us to respond to that light as you give us more light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.